HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by 100 Bogart Street, the brand new co-working space in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Learn more at 100bogart.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to HR and Happy Hour. It's five o'clock somewhere, and somewhere is Bushwick. I'm Kat Johnson, the Communications Director here at Heritage Radio Network. My co-host, Katie Mosman-Wadler, is unfortunately out sick today. But joining me, I know. Guys, don't get the flu, okay? It's really bad this year. Did Everyone's been vaccine? saying that. Uh, I don't know. Um, okay. But Tamiflu is your friend. PSA of the day. Tamiflu. Okay. But joining me from the HRN team are Hannah Forden, our membership coordinator. Hey, Kat. Hello. Our intern extraordinaire and trivia master, Sam Lee. Hello. And our new Julia Child fellow, Sarah Strong. Hey, Sarah. Hello. Welcome, everybody. And as always, shout out to our stalwart engineer, David Tadashore, who is in the booth making sure we all sound great. That's what I do. Thank you. (laughs) And we're really excited to have today's guests in the studio, as well as some really scrumptious looking baked goods that they brought along. So one of our guests is an accomplished cookbook author, baker, food writer, TV personality, and the winner of the very first season of The Great British Bake Off. Congratulations. It was a very long time. (laughs) (laughs) And we're just so thrilled to have you in the studio all the way from across the pond. Welcome, Ed Kimber. Thank you for having me. Yay. Thank you. We also, super excited about this, we also have on a former airline worker turned cookbook author, president and chief creative officer of Hoffman Media, as well as the creator and editor-in-chief of Bake From Scratch magazine, and Alabama native, Woo! Alabama Whoa. in the house. Hey, y'all. Brian Hart Hoffman's here. Hey, hey. <laughs> this is very exciting for me. <laughs> yeah, Alabama represent. Um, so we're going to chat with Ed and Brian about uh, their storied careers and adventures in baking a little later on. And of course, we will get some trivia in there at the end of the show. So get ready, gentlemen. We are geared up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we have wine. So I it's love nice. it. It helps. It helps. It doesn't matter it. if I get it wrong. No, it doesn't. 
You can never go wrong when there's drink in your hand. Exactly. Um, but first, um, we do our headlines during our show, but this week we're doing things a little differently because we're recording this a week early. That's right. It's March 1st, but we're not actually in the studio because we are in Charleston for Charleston Wine and Food right now. So as we're back in time, we're going to do some um, a little bit of a taste of what we're going to be doing while we're at Charleston. So um, we're going to be broadcasting uh, live interviews and panels as part of our Heritage Radio Network on tour series from the Charleston Wine and Foods uh, Culinary Village in downtown Charleston. We'll be all set up in our teepee. Yes. So look for the giant teepee in the Culinary Village. That's at Marion Square in downtown Charleston. Wait, it's not the Culinary Village? It's, the, it's pretty cool. <laughs> I would say it's pretty cool. Um, we'll be there Friday, Saturday, and Sunday afternoons from 12 to 5 p.m. So if you're mosing on around Charleston, come on in, hang out. Uh, some of our guests will include Sean Brock, Jessica B. Harris, Jillian Zettler, who is the executive director of Charleston Wine and Food, and many, many, many more. We cram as many people in our TP as we possibly can because we want to talk to everybody who's Not there. Not a euphemism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or is it? Hmm. Uh, and if you want to get in on the action, you can tune in live at heritageradionetwork.org slash listen, and you can get all the action March 2nd through 4th. Yes. Um, all right. So we have a couple of other event announcements we want to talk about. Charleston is not the only place you can catch HRN in the wild this month. Um, Dana Cowan will be interviewing Martha Hoover at South by Southwest for a special episode of Speaking Broadly. That's taking place on Monday, March 12th in Austin, Texas. And on the next day, March 13th, Snacky Tunes Live is taking place at, El, at the El Rey Theater in Los Angeles. Um, so the evening's going to feature an interview and an intimate performance by soul singer-songwriter. I'm, I hope I'm saying this right. Is it Nia? It's either Nia or N-I-I-A. Either way, we're super <laughs> That's excited. That's how it's spelled. <laughs> yeah. No. Um, so it's going to be uh, an interview, and it's also going to feature an interview and food from Chef Micah Wexler and Michael Kassar of Wexler's Deli, and a DJ set from Femme Jeans. Femme Jeans. Yep. Tickets from the show are $30 and include a plate of food. So if you're in L.A., check it out. Yes, you can find out more info about those events and links to tickets at heritageradionetwork.org slash events. And another reminder is that on March 22nd here in Brooklyn, we're going to be hosting an event called So You Think You Know Mezcal, which is an educational tasting. Um, and it's going to be at our office at 100 Bogart in Bushwick from 630 to 8 p.m. Um, and it's going to be hosted by a really fantastic organization called Sacred, which is a group that stands for Saving Agave for Agriculture, Recreation, Education and development. Um, and it's going to be really fun and informative. There's such a rich history with Mezcal. Um, so you should definitely come have a drink and hang out. You can get tickets uh, now through our Facebook or you can go to heritageradionetwork.org slash events. Yes. So lots of opportunities to hang with Heritage Woo! in March. So we'll see you around. All right, so we're now going to turn back to our guests in the studio, Ed Kimber and Brian Hart Hoffman. So first of all, guys, I want to hear from you what what forces brought you two together <laughs> and what you're working on at the moment. Um, so about two years ago when the magazine launched, which is Big From Scratch, Brian uh, graciously put the American edition of my third book as one of the kind of books in a, a French feature. I think it was, and I, my book was about patisserie. And that kind of started a relationship. And then a year ago, 
Um, after a couple of other things in the magazine, Brian reached out and was like, hey, we have this idea. So I'll let you... Well, a little side note. So when we featured you in the first issue, mm. we literally had 300 followers on Instagram. <laughs> um, we have 290,000 today. Wow. So nice. it's been a super rapid growth. But Ed posted a photo, as he beautifully does, of the issue and on his... All yeah, that was Ed. <laughs> Thanks, Ed. <laughs> but we we literally got, you know, a thousand new followers that day just from his post. And I remember the excitement of thinking he loves what we're doing. We love what he's doing. Obviously, baking is a global topic, or at least it is for us. And so we featured him in the first uh, year that we released our Baker's Dozen list. So 13 people in the baking world that everyone should know. He was our international superstar with his... I'll take that. Yeah, right? <laughs> he, you know, winning the first season of British Bake Off, it's, you know, he put the show on the map or the beginning of that popularity I'll that grew. I'll also take that. Yeah. yeah, right? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to praise you for a, a long time. Um, see? I'm glad everyone agrees. Um, and so then I really wanted to think bigger. I was like, we need to get on yeah. the phone with Ed and chat an entire issue dedicated to British baking. So our January, February issue of uh, Bake From Scratch is the British baking issue. And when we asked him what he thought about 10 days of us popping over to London and spending time with a photographer and writers and subject matter that would be relevant to a U.S., predominantly a U.S. audience. We have readers from all over the world, but um, he quickly jumped on board. So it's been a relationship that's been everybody saying yes and loving on the process the whole time. Well, so. I think for me, that one of the reasons was that um, we have great food magazines in the UK, but we have no really good baking magazines. And really, there isn't any good baking magazines that aren't for uh, pastry chefs or for professional professional bakers. Um, and so when I saw Bake From Scratch, the quality of it is, is a lot higher than most kind of glossy magazines. It's not that kind of thin, newspaper-y kind of paper. It's high quality. It's low advertising. It's Lots of content. Like, this issue has 72 recipes in it, so it's almost cookbook-size content. So I was just excited to be able to do some more work in America because I love the country and I love the baking here. Um, And then to be able to kind of show what London and the UK has in terms of its baking scene, which I think is great, was amazing. And also I got to put all my friends in it, so it's also really good. (laughs) Ah, that's a way to keep friends, huh? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I've become very, very... No, I don't know why I started rubbing my beard. I'm like, I don't know what what that is. We're not on television. No, I know. (laughs) Thank God. So that's one one thing I wanted to ask you about, Brian. Um, I read at some point um, in an interview, you said that um, it's not just about... Lots of quick, easy recipes. There's absolutely a place for that, but it's about long-form baking is a term that you used. What do you mean by long-form baking, and why is that important to have in print? I think there was a segment of people that weren't getting enough baking content, and that's the person that would call themselves more advanced. Mm -hmm. They like hours spent in the kitchen. They don't mind a weekend baking project where you are going to be patient and let the dough do its thing. Um, so there's a balance. I mean, obviously we all have that Tuesday night that we need to get something baked for a dinner with friends or something to take to the office the next day. And we want to deliver that, but we also want to deliver artisan baking content where we're not just trying to show you the shortcut and the quick fix because that was never part of the mission. Mm -hmm. It was delivering a balance of content to people that absolutely have said, we love baking and we want more of it. It's actually something that we have in common because... Um, whenever I write a cookbook, I always try and think of 
multiple readers. So I always think of kind of me 10 years ago and what book I would have wanted. Mm -hmm. So I never want a book that is super basic because you can't grow with it. And so for me, it's always about providing something that everybody can do, but then also pushing it so you can grow with it. And in five years, when you're more confident and you have things that you know better, you can do the harder recipes. And I think actually you're right in that some people will dumb down a recipe and I'll flick through a book and I'm like, this has nothing to offer me. So mm-hmm. I think it's really important to challenge people because, you know, that's part of why you buy a cookbook is to learn something. So you don't want something that's just kind of like you don't need the book for. So mm-hmm. I think it's, yeah, it's one of the reasons we get on and why we work together is that we have a similar kind of vibe, let's say. Uh, yeah, nice. <laughs> Apparently, I'm using the word vibe too much at the moment, and I just realized you I just, said that my, you yeah, my boyfriend's going to hate that. Yeah, he's going to vibe all day. <laughs> I'm going to say, just kidding. <laughs> um, so, Ed, I obviously have to ask you about Great mm-hmm. British Bake Off because people in the States, I think, increasingly are getting into it. Like, oh, yeah. You know, it's something like. I really only started watching it this year, to be honest. Sure. And I'm like going back and I'm like, this is great. I have so much Great British Bake Off that I can watch. And I am curious because you were the winner of the first season. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the reasons that we in America like catch like latch onto it so much is because it's so friendly mm-hmm. and it's so different from other not just cooking competition, but like reality oh, yeah, competition completely. in general. I'm curious to be on the first season of that show. Was that always, like, the idea? I hate this music. <laughs> it haunts my dreams. Oh, um, or do you think that, like, you as the like the first contestants on that show, did, like, you kind of establish that vibe, um, if you will? I think there's probably a mix of both because um, a, I never wanted to do reality TV because I'm not a reality TV person. I don't really like... The, I was going to say vibe again. Ugh. <laughs> Um, I don't really like the energy, let's say that, Um, because it's kind of nasty. Like, if you look at the American Idols, those kind of shows, it's often about laughing at people not doing a very good job. I think there's something really nasty about that. So I love the fact that Bake Off is about celebrating people's talent and just watching them do something really well. Mm -hmm. And, like, when when they have a a screw-up, you you feel it for them and you get emotional. Um, Maybe that's just me. Um, (laughs) But... You talk about the friending list, but I actually think if you go back to season one, I can give you the illegal links to watch it since it's not on air in America. <gasps> exactly, that's the um, problem. <laughs> we don't have. It's still one. watched a lot. Um, is the fact that we didn't know what we were doing, and so um, and neither did the production company. They'd never made a show of that type before. They made these very odd um, kind of. They call them documentaries, but they were almost like a reality TV show documentary about um, big topics like uh, disability. But they were kind of not very nice. And I only found that after I started working with them. So I was slightly nervous about, like, oh, no, what are they going to do with the show? But because they'd never made a show like that, they were finding their feet. Mm-hmm. And they kind of left the contestants alone a lot of the time. So we didn't really have a lot of hand-holding. And we weren't really looked after that well. And so we just kind of bonded very quickly. And so you say how friendly the show is now. But if you look at season one, it's so much more friendly. Because there's zero level of competitiveness at all. And they had to kind of edit in some drama because there just wasn't any. And so there was one contestant who came second uh, called Ruth. And she was such, such a nice um, woman. She, mother of three kids, I think, like super amazing. I love her dearly. Um, And people would come up to me and go, oh, wasn't she awful? I'm like, no, what are you talking about? And it's because they would edit some of her looks to make it look like she was being snide to me, which it wasn't at all. It was just incredibly, like, supportive. Um, she would finish early before everyone else, so she'd be sitting there having cups of tea and going around helping everybody. And it was really that kind of, like, if someone's going wrong, go and help them. Um, and I think it is completely the antithesis of most reality TV shows and cooking shows, because whilst it's competitive, 
Americans might be surprised. There's no prize. There's a trophy. There's mm-hmm. not even a trophy. You get a cake stand now. Mm-hmm. I'm the only one who got an actual trophy. Um, <laughs> nice. One person got a trophy because, that they made because they forgot to buy one, and they weren't allowed to keep it, but it was good because it was the ugliest thing known to man. It was made with <laughs> fake eggs, a vase, a, a tart tin. It was kind of odd. Um, but, yeah, it, it was a strange thing because I never wanted to do TV or, or any form of media. So kind of my life now is... Not what I expected. <laughs> <laughs> well, how did you originally get involved in doing the show to, to begin with? If it So um, I used to have an awful job. I used to be a debt collector. Um, and I, it wasn't a job I ever kind of wanted or went for, but I had left university with a degree in politics and gender studies and all these things. And um, that means you can't get a job, pretty much. Um, so I had no idea what I wanted to do. I, I tried to go work in the charity sector for a while, but... I'm uh, from a, a fairly working class family, so I couldn't afford to live for a year without being paid. So I ended up falling into a temp job as a tech collector and hated it. And so because it was like the early 2000s, I set up a blog and it was terrible and the writing was awful and the photography was awful. But it wasn't meant to be read by anyone. It was meant for me because I decided that the only thing I should be doing with my career is something that I love, which was baking. Um, but I had been turned down from catering college so I was like, screw you, I'm going to teach myself and then start up on my own. So the blog was kind of about me documenting just for me this kind of what turned into about three, four year process of me baking almost every single day. Um, and then as I was doing that, I was on social media. So people started following the thing and um, someone who followed me and read the, the website emailed me and said, I found this. I think it's for you. Um which I dismissed. I deleted the email and was like, <laughs> no one's putting on me on TV. Just because I thought no one in their right mind would put me on TV. And I also just did not think I would ever be good enough for that. So two friends of mine, one who is a pastry chef, who used to be a pastry chef here at the Union Square Cafe, um, and a friend of mine uh, who both live in London, were like, uh, if you don't think you're going to get on, why don't you just go for it? And I love TV. I love film. I love the kind of process and the, the behind the scenes of it. So I thought... I'll go, I'll do it so I can see an audition. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people, when I say that, genuinely don't think I'm telling the truth. They think, oh, of course you wanted to be a TV. Of course you wanted all of that. I'm like, no, I genuinely thought I would go and see an audition and that would be it. Mm-hmm. Um, but then every stage I was like, oh, okay, I've got through it. I was doing that on the show. I never thought I'd get on the final. So I think that's why I did okay, because I never thought I'd get to the next stage. So I just concentrated on that episode. Um, but yeah, they convinced me to do it. And I did. And then I won. And here you are. <laughs> here you are. And then eight years later. Um, so, Brian, I want to ask you, you also had, like, a, mm. a former job that is maybe a little different from what people would have expected. So tell me, what what job took you to Alaska and beyond? I was a flight attendant. <laughs> and now I'll use my airline voice because yeah. it's going to make me think about getting on the PA. Um, so, you know, as a child, my mom started our magazine publishing company 35 years ago. So it was always mom's company. It was never it was never my dream. I dreamed of traveling. I dreamed of the airline world that would take me to new places to meet new people and try new things. So I did that. I became a flight attendant. I lived in the Northeast, and after 9-11 and airline bankruptcies, I ended up going to work for Alaska Airlines. They were the only airline hiring at the time, and it was the best thing that ever happened because I ended up living in Anchorage, Alaska, a place I never thought I'd be, um, and fell in love with it, and fell in love with a place that was never on the list. You know, I think we all think, oh, I'll move to L.A. or New York or... 
Paris or London or wherever. But Anchorage, Alaska became the best thing that happened because I was somewhere new and very far away from home. And I fell in love with finding culture through food. Um, people ask all the time if I learned to bake from my mom and my grandmother. And that was a part of my childhood. But my true like fire lit when I would travel to layover cities and ask people, where do I go? I want to taste something that's local to this area. What do the people love to eat? Where should I line up and get something? And I also happen to really love sweet things. <laughs> so it happened to be through the bakeries and cafes. Um, so I fell in love with baking because I would come home and want to recreate it and find recipes. And this was before Instagram and you know the popularity of many blogs. So I would look for cookbooks or go to Barnes & Noble and go to the travel section and see if there was anything that was relevant. Um, so yeah, that's, I had the airline world and then fell in love with baking <laughs> and the family publishing company. 10 years ago, um, my twin brother and I both joined our mom in business. The company was growing. She, she needed help. And it's funny how adulthood brings maturity. Um, I think we all, you know, think, oh, I'll never, oh, I'll never. Mm -hmm. And then you find yourself in that scenario going, oh, I did, but I did it in a way that. Uh, I was ready and she was ready. So no one had pressure to join the family business. Um, and now it's something I love even more than I ever thought. And having the creative freedom to work with my mom and my twin brother, but start brands from my brain and my creative vision, uh, Bake From Scratch being probably the, the one that I would hang my hat on as that was from Brian's brain. That's what I do in my personal time. So yeah, now I share mom's dream. <laughs> so we all love it. So what was starting Big From Scratch like? What was that whole process? You know, I knew that there was a gap in the marketplace. Um, as magazine publishers, we have 11 titles. We've been doing this for a long time. And I don't know if I thought of it as like, God, why, why are people so stupid that there's no baking magazine out there? We all use baking content to promote magazines, and we would do special editions of holiday baking. And I would love those. But then I thought gosh, I want more of this. I want something in January, something in March, something in May. And it's, you know, that aha moment that you're like, we need a baking magazine. And I will say, I think the rise of baking blogs and mm. baking as an industry really separated itself from just food, where pastry chefs weren't very known at the restaurant groups with very internationally acclaimed, you know, culinary and savory chefs. It was the pastry chefs that started to get some attention. So I think all of it started to collide together. And I thought, let's give it a try. Um, I remember sitting in Brooke Bell's office. She's standing in this studio with us right now. Hi, Brooke. Um, I remember looking at her and saying, let's do this. Let's just do one issue and see what happens. You know, we'll put together the best baking content we can think of with artisan, long form, different approach um, to baking, not your cupcakes and you know aprons with mom you know putting treats on the table after school we're going for like the people that love baking hardcore and so we did it and the messages and emails and social posts of people saying I can't believe I found this magazine it's the best thing I found it's what I want it's what I've been looking for I was like yeah. oh my god you're all out there yeah. it's funny that <laughs> the you crowd say, is there so it's funny that you say about um the response to it and people wanting that 
because we launched the issue in the UK as a special and it's never been available in the UK other than subscription before. And the amount of messages I've got from people saying, we need a magazine like this in the UK because the UK has such a strong baking heritage. It's kind of, it, like you were saying about parents, it's the thing you do as a kid. Like, it's just part of your life a lot of the times. Maybe not as much these days, but when I was growing up, it's just what I did. And the fact that we don't have a quality baking magazine, to me, is kind of shocking. So I think the magazine fills a really uh, obvious hole, and I think it does it really well. So, I, you know, it's, it's, yeah. And we wanted it to have its international language. We use gram measurements for baking, which... Any Americans listening right now, please buy a kitchen scale. (laughs) Please weigh your ingredients. We should be doing this internationally. But it's something that in the U.S. is a little bit of a foreign concept. Mm -hmm. But outside of the U.S., it's the normal. Mm -hmm. So we wanted it to be if you pick up a copy in England or a friend in, you know, South Africa receives a copy and they bake by weight, we have the gram measurements in every issue, in every recipe. So we wanted it to be something that translates internationally. Awesome. So um, I want to take a quick break for a moment. But when we come back, I want to really get into this latest issue, the British baking issue, and hear a little bit more about what's in that. And just from Ed, like, what is British baking all about for people who maybe are not exposed to it at all? So we'll be right back with Ed Kimber and Brian Hart Hoffman. Street is finally open and ready for Bushwick. 100 Bogart is a brand new, state-of-the-art co-working space that provides turnkey workspaces, including open layout desks, meeting spaces, and furnished private offices. Members have access to top-notch amenities such as custom furniture, high-speed internet, spacious kitchenettes with coffee and tea, printers, scanners, and much more. Alongside their professional work environment, 100 Bogart also provides exclusive educational programming for any curious entrepreneur. Heritage Radio Network has made their new office home at 100 Bogart and will host many events there in the future. For more information about their co-working space, visit 100bogart.com and become a member to network, create, and educate. Welcome back to HR and Happy Hour. We are here with our guests, Ed Kimber and Brian Hart Hoffman. And they're here to talk about um, Bake from Scratch Magazine's first ever British issue. So guys, tell me about what's in this issue. Um, so when Brian approached me to say, let's do this British issue, he kind of let me run a little bit. So they had certain features they might want to do, but kind of what the recipes were was kind of in my hands a lot of the time. So um, there is pudding, which is not pudding. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Try so, being in London with him saying, we're going to go for pudding and, and someone like, hands you a slice of cake. You're like, yeah. wait, it's funny. What? It's put- not jello. What? <laughs> yeah, right. So pudding- there's that Alabama girl. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so pudding is dessert, but dessert, uh, sorry, pudding is dessert, but cake can be pudding, but isn't always pudding. Whoa. 
so it's just kind of a pudding to me is dessert, but it's a homely dessert oftentimes. So it might be nostalgic. Um, and it is a word that's not necessarily used as much these days. But when I was a kid, I would ask my parents, like, what's for pudding? Like, that's the thing you ask for. Hmm. Um, but it can anything can be pudding. So we I push the boundaries a little bit um, and put things that... I consider pudding, whereas some people might not. There's a tart in there. There's, well, there's a custard tart, Ooh. which is kind of like the Yorkshire version of the custard tart. But it's very different, but it's crazy good. has loads of nutmeg on top. Mm. Um, and there's some historical things that don't necessarily get made as much these days. So one of the pudding recipes, which is a pudding, is a what's called Queen's Pudding. And it's a really old-fashioned recipe. And it's, it's almost like a set custard with um, uh, breadcrumbs. And it's kind of slightly dense. And then you top it with normally just jam and then French meringue. Um, and the only thing I did to it was add some fresh fruit as well to lighten it and add Italian meringue instead to make a nicer texture. Um, but that's super old-fashioned. And it's not super common or popular anymore. But it's a really interesting thing to do with British historical kind of desserts. Because one of the things we have is a huge lineage of, you know, dishes that have gone on to become other things. You look at American layer cakes, they have their heritage in, you know, a Victoria sponge, which is like the classic British cake. Um, so there's a ton of things like uh, historical recipes in there, as, lo- as well as kind of Brian and the team's spin on British classics. So there's a feature on Cornish pasties, which is like a hand pie, but like a fist-sized hand pie, not like a delicate one. And it's normally filled with um, beef and potatoes and onions and carrots, and it's, it was meant to be your meal. Um, the handle on it, the kind of the crimped edge you wouldn't eat, that was what you hold the pastry with. And so Brian took my classic recipe and then added their own kind of twist on it. So there's a full English breakfast one, which you'd never find in the UK, but has a relevance to it. So there's that kind of stuff in there as well. Um, And then there's a feature where I took the team around London to my favorite kind of food places. And that's not just baking, that's kind of cocktails and my favorite Italian deli and all that kind of stuff. Well, and Ed is so active on social media, showing people his day-to-day life. and My fake day-to-day life. (laughs) (laughs) Don't tell him. (laughs) We wanted that to be in the issue. Like off the beaten path, this is the local London. This is someone that lives in London that loves baking, that loves cocktails and where to shop for those fun things. Mm. So we were with him. So it was really fun for us, too. Um, We also traveled around the country. We went outside of London to the coastal town of Oraford to Pump Street Bakery. Yeah, I was I didn't want it to be just London because Mm. as much as good as London is. It's not the only thing about our country, so we went to the coast. And you can find Pump Street chocolate here in the U.S., mm-hmm. so when you see that on the shelf, just, you know, it's not manufactured in this mega no, no. facility. We went and our jaws hit the floor when you're like, oh my gosh, this internationally acclaimed product is being made here in this super yeah. cute coastal town that... Actually, I, in an ex-army base on the coast. Yeah, um, yeah. And it's, it, the village is so small, it has um, a seafood restaurant, a pub a church, and I think it's just... And then the bakery, and then I think it's just a post office, and that's it. It's so small. um, And the bakery's like a gathering spot. Mm -hmm. So they have this huge, long table in the middle of the the main space where the locals come. They don't just grab their pastry and leave. They grab their food, and they sit and gather and talk. And just to stand along the side and watch that happen, and people just, how's your day? And, oh, this, I haven't seen you in a while. And it really is a hub of that little town. And then we went up to to John Waite's cookery school and took a bread class. Where was that, Brooke? Say it from the background, Brooke. Wigan. (laughs) (laughs) The train stop is Wigan. Wow. (laughs) 
<laughs> and if you are looking to get outside into the English countryside yeah. and bake, this is like the coolest spot. And it's another British Bake Off mm-hmm. winner from season three that runs this cookery school. And it was it's pretty crazy. awesome. So we captured that too. So we wanted people to see what you can do, not just baking in your own home kitchen, but if you find yourself in England, how to go and dive in head first into the British baking world. I think my favorite feature in the magazine is the potluck. And also, I didn't know what potluck was. Um, it's no. not a term we use. Um, I t- we took I, that over in the mm-hmm, issue. I was like, mm-hmm, yeah, sure, we can <laughs> so do that. Cool. What is it? Um, and so that was where we got some of the kind of country's best bakers. And that was where I had a lot of fun because I basically was in a- able to bring some of my favorite people into the room together. And because, you know, a lot of them are day-to-day working bakers, none of them had ever been in the room together at the same time. So it was kind of this awesome mix of people that all know each other, but as a group have never kind of hung out. And so it was a shoot, but it was just kind of the most fun day. And people were forgetting that they were having their picture taken. One guy, Dan. So Dan Leppard's like the UK's best baking writer. He's written, I don't know, six books and used to have a column in The Guardian and he's just like legendarily uh, prolific in terms of his knowledge. And he was like bringing out his camera because he used to be a photographer. I'm like, Dan, you're in a shoot. You have to put the camera down. Um, And so it was just so much fun. And I think uh, we got recipes from the people that came. And it's just a really beautiful feature. So I think possibly that's my favorite in the whole issue just because it really gives a snapshot about who Britain, you know, who the bakers in Britain are and what they're producing because we have so many different styles and backgrounds. Kind of like New York, it's, it is that kind of cliched melting pot where you can find baking of so many different types and different cultures and style. And I love that about cities like New York and London. I just swore you were going to say when I taught you to make Southern biscuits. That was also really fun. <laughs> that, yeah. that was going to be my next question is like, um, Brian, you got to go and hang out with Ed and do the whole London thing. Do you ever think that Ed could come and you could do like an Alabama or a Southern baking tour of the same caliber? So, I mean, we've talked about mm-hmm. it. We want to we want to work together for a long time. We feel like the relationship is obviously very friendly, but also we we love introducing new things to different cultures. And I would love for him to see the, the South and our baking traditions. Mm-hmm. It was quite a challenge to make Southern biscuits in London. The ingredients, the <laughs> no flour, the yeah, no white lily flour. You know? Yes. Um, you know, people just swear by that for Southern baking, yeah. even though in other baking we use all the other great brands. But um, but in, in London, trying to find, like, you know, the flour that fit. And then we had a day that we mm-hmm. baked the the English scones yeah, and so- Southern biscuits. And we wanted it to be a very much an introduction to each other's traditional, you know, baking. Um, I learned what a wetty dough is. <laughs> we can thank Carrie Morey for that in Charleston, Sorry, South Carolina. Her biscuit method is very unique in and uh-huh. of itself. And it's the one I actually like to use in my kitchen, but she calls the dough a wetty. I did not know that. And the moisture content, is, you tump it out. <laughs> can we say Callie's that? This Hot Little Biscuit, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Callie's Biscuits. Yeah. She loves that dough to be very huh. wetty. But you can't touch it. So what? You have to cover it in flour to move it. It's you ensconce insane. it in flour, <laughs> yeah. turn it out, and put those biscuits on the pan you very quickly. You You tump it out. You tump it out. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> tump it. I can't do Southern Accent. Well, can't do any accent. Tell me about the goodies that you brought for us today. So uh, as part of that kind of idea, I've brought um, kind of traditional English scones. So... Uh, we couldn't find clotted cream because it's really hard to find in the in the US. So we brought whipped cream. So 
it's a good approximation. Um, and they're kind of a really simple scone. So it's been really interesting because we've been going across the country uh, kind of promoting the issue. We've been doing baking classes and demos and things. And <laughs> I keep saying how I'm not a fan of triangle scones. And it's not because of their shape. It's not at all. <laughs> so I'm going to say this so Alice Medrich doesn't have a go at me again. I'm joking. <laughs> she was so lovely, but she kind of did it to wind me up. Um, so... Basically, it's like my thought on cupcakes. There's nothing... You can make a good cupcake, but very often when you see a cupcake, it's not good. So it's kind of like the same with, I think, triangle scones. You can make a great triangle scone, but often when I buy one, they're not very good because they're mm. quite dry. So these are made with a very, very different method, and it's almost needed. Um, it's a stupid term called chaffing, and it's basically just a very light fold and turn, but it adds air, um, and this is kind of... This is not super traditional. It is a traditional recipe in terms of you would get this in a hotel. This is not kind of your homemade scone. This is slightly elevated. Um, but this I was taught to make. So my mom taught me to make proper like, rustic homemade scones when I was a kid. Um, but after Bake Off, I got approached by um, Raymond Blanc, who's a two-star Michelin French chef in Oxford. And he kind of said, I've seen you on the show and you say you want to be a pastry chef come do a stage at the kitchen. So uh, a two-star kitchen was my first experience with kitchen. Also taught me I never want to be in the kitchen again. Uh, <laughs> not because it was a bad place, just because it didn't fit me. Yeah. Um, but one of the things I learned there was how to make this kind of posh afternoon tea sc uh, style scone. So uh, they have uh, raisins in there and then served with cream and oh, only jam. So we've kind of had um, different people have brought us different jams and things. And someone brought marmalade. I'm like, uh, 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 no, not on a scone. I mean, fine, go for it if you like it. It's no problem, but it's wrong. So, you know, there are rules and that's against them. <laughs> All right. Well, I have one final question for you in the spirit of, um, I don't know, Competition and cooking, okay. um, and I'm, I, I've decided I'm going to pose it slightly differently to each of you. Okay. Um, so, Ed, if yes. you were asked to bake, not even just a cake, anything for the upcoming royal wedding, <laughs> what would you bake? Uh, uh, it wouldn't be anything traditional. So, I know the person who made uh, the Queen's wedding cake. So essentially, she made one of the beautiful cakes of the, of the Queen. And it's insane how detailed it is. And it's just stuff that bores me silly. Mm -hmm. um, so I kind of liked what, um, I'm going to forget his name, William. Like, that's how not into the royal family I am. Um, <laughs> and it's not that I'm an anti-royalist. I just don't care. I get it. Um, and I liked it that they did something kind of different and fun. And so I think because uh, Harry seems a little bit more chilled and relaxed, and the fact he's marrying an American, it would have to be something that kind of combines the two so maybe like a coconut cake like a big old southern coconut cake because oh, I love coconut, coconut cake. cake well you're like that was going to be my question to Brian okay. was same question but it has to be an, a southern <laughs> a southern thing and you just nailed it oh, I have my <laughs> answer the for best that. cake like yeah. layers of so uh, different yes. southern cakes red velvet underneath oh. you know you're missing my I favorite I would make hummingbird, hummingbird? cake yeah, okay. yes hummingbird cake yes you win very disappointed. I think we combine them Sound and you have a three-layer cake, and that's it's yes. Yeah. Red so coconut, coconut, red velvet, yeah. Yeah, that's good for me. That's so yeah. killer. Yeah. If I'm you're not. listening, Harry and Megan, we got you. I'm very cheap. It's fine. <laughs> you right. know they're tuned in. Yeah, absolutely, they listen every week. We don't know what that is, but it's, it's the suspense was building. I can feel it. It's the suspense to trivia. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay. 
So, because you're both renowned experts in just about everything to do with baking in the real world, we okay. thought we would test your knowledge of baking in the world of fiction and fantasy. Oh, wow. Oh, okay. Lord. Oh, my lord. <laughs> oh, my lord. That's Brian's English, apparently. <laughs> Such a perfect accent. It's great. Also, he Thank thinks you. we all say, oh, my lord. Don't. <laughs> Blimey. Blimey. <laughs> also something we don't say, even though my boyfriend thinks we do. <laughs> All right. Question number one. What is the name of the bread baker who gives the starving Katniss Everdeen oh, a loaf of I burned bread know. in the Hunger Games? I've never seen it or read it. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Baker. I don't Mr. Know. Baker is wrong. His name was Peter Malark. <sighs> he is a master like baker, you though. you knew that, Brian. You can remember I know the name, but I didn't mm-hmm. remember yeah. that one. I remember that because Pete is a bread. I, yeah, I was going to say <laughs> then. Please it's. tell me it's spelled Peter. No. Oh, that's sad. P-E-E-T-A. <laughs> um, all right. It's question number two. Who plays Mrs. Lovett, the baker who <gasps> makes meat pies out of murder victims in Tim Burton's 2007 oh, adaptation oh, of Sweeney Todd? It's a terrible British accent actress who plays the same thing in every character. <laughs> Um, I mean, that's kind of accurate because she's in every... <laughs> she's you're right. She's in every Tim Burton film. Because they're um, together. They're married, yeah. But they don't live in the same house. They live Nepotism. in a house that connects that, through a... Um, that would work uh, That makes a lot of sense. They have a corridor between two houses, so they don't live technically in the same house, apparently. Boy. I can't remember her name. I have no idea. <laughs> it's Helena Bonham Carter. Carter. That's yep. it. There, you got it. All right, question number three. Maurice Sendak's classic children's book... In the Night Kitchen is about a boy named Mickey who is helping the night bakers make a cake for the morning. What vehicle does Mickey escape in when he falls into the cake batter? Butter. Uh, <laughs> a vehicle. Uh, I have no idea. I've never even heard of the book. I oh, it's so good. Is it American? It is American. Okay. I think, isn't it like the milk truck or something? It's like... I was going to say, like, flower truck. He gets, like, submerged in milk at some point in that. He, yeah, he falls in a cake batter, apparently, and then he, uh, he, I'll say he flies out of it. On oh, a, yeah. On a wooden On a butter wrapper? Or a <laughs> I'm going to keep talking about butter. <laughs> An airplane? <laughs> An air, a plane. A plane made of bread dough. Oh, good, good. That was real Yeah, tricky. I could have guessed that. That's so obvious. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. of course. I think it was the airplane thing. <laughs> Question number four. What was the catchphrase of Dunkin' Donuts' famous pitchman, Fred the Baker, from 1982 to 1997? Hint, the catchphrase is very straightforward. (laughs) Something like, Dunkin' Donuts, you dunk them. I don't know. Very good. You should be a copywriter. Yeah. <laughs> I really shouldn't. Is this, is this time to make the donuts? Yeah. yeah. Time to bake oh. donuts. Yeah, that's really boring. Time to bake yeah. donuts. All right, question number five. What year did the famous Pilbury Doughboy make his debut? I don't know. 1928. Later. 1934. Later. 1952. Later. 1955. <laughs> You're very close. 1956, 1957, <laughs> The correct year is 1965. Uh, I was just 10 away. On yeah, that last. so close. <laughs> Question number six. What company invented the fictional character Betty Crocker and why was she created? I think it was Betty Crocker Incorporated that uh, invented Betty Crocker. <laughs> no. <laughs> That was a really good guess, though. <laughs> See? I have no idea. 
I think cereal company, like breakfast. Kellogg's. No, no, the other one. Nestle. No. I can't think of any of the Toast. Cheerios. That's no. not company. Nabisco. I'll tell you who it was, and okay. then you can see if you can know why, which is the more interesting part. Okay. General Mills created her in 1921, and she she would actually do something. She would bake cookies. No. Okay, I'll tell you. She would give a personalized response to consumer product questions. Oh. She was like a fake spokesperson. How smart Because I knew, that the, I knew she was a kind of fake spokesperson, but I didn't realize she actually yeah. gave responses. Yeah. Because I thought the reason they made her was to kind of um, make it seem like this genuine, like, old company where this, you know, like with the story about the chocolate chip cookies with, um, I'm going to forget her name. The woman who invented uh, Tolhas cookies because she did something with the chips or something. I can't remember. They like fell into the batter. Yeah, like yeah, one yeah, of those yeah. narrative stories that means, you, oh, that's such a heritage company. Like, yeah. I need to go and buy They're you. so real. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Two more questions. Question number seven. What are the names of the Keebler elves? I don't even know what that is. Oh, I do. I... I'm so But English. I wanted to say snap, crackle, and pop, but I think that's <laughs> the that's Rice Krispie people. I think you should get credit for that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, there's like a lot of them. There's Ernie, Ma, Elmer, Buckets, Fast, Eddie, Buckets. Sam, Roger, Doc. Who are these people? Zoot. JJ. Elves. For what? <laughs> Keebler. The cookie. What's Keebler? <laughs> they all live in a tree together. Great. What do they do? <laughs> they bake they cookies. Keebler okay. cookies. What is a Keebler cookie? They sometimes it does not fudge. sound tasty. They sometimes visit oh, Betty they Crocker. Do. There's a fudge. Okay. What was it? Fudge, which it took me forever to realize that was Elf. E L. Elf fudge. Oh. But those are just in this fudge. I ate a lot of Keebler growing up. <laughs> me too, oh. but I didn't learn the history. I didn't go to baking history class. The last question is like a gimme. Okay. Where do the Keebler elves' ovens reside? In a the tree. tree. You got it. Yay! <laughs> you win trivia. Yeah, we were so good at that. Mm-hmm. You don't win anything except maybe a cake stand. <laughs> we'll see. All right. Thank you to Ed Kimber and Brian Hart Hoffman for joining us today. Thanks to the whole HR and crew, Hannah Forden, Sam Lee, Sarah Strong. Thanks to Brooke for hanging out. <laughs> Thanks to David Tadishore for making us all sound good. Yeah. Does he not get a sound effect for himself? <laughs> wow. <laughs> Give yourself the promo. <laughs> um, we're sending our best wishes to Katie Moseman Wadler. Get well soon. Get well. Um, today is March 1st. Tomorrow we start broadcasting live from Charleston uh, Wine and Food. So make sure you tune in at heritageradio.org slash listen. Um, 12 to 5 p.m. Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. I want to give a special shout out on Friday, tomorrow at 3 p.m. We're going to have honky tonk music. So tune in for that. It's going to be great. All right. We'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. 
driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. HRN Happy Hour is powered by Simplecast. Simplecast is a popular hosting and analytics platform that allows podcasters to easily host and publish to apps like Apple Podcasts. If you have a podcast or are looking to create your very first, check it out. Try it for free and save half off your first three months at simplecast.com forward slash heritage. Ever wonder what kind of podcast Julia Child would have made? probably would have been one where she introduced you to all of her latest discoveries and favorite people. And that's exactly the tradition we're following on Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. Join me, Todd Shulkin, your host, and the Foundation's Executive Director, as I bring you inside the Foundation's world to meet the bright lights of today's food universe, just as Julia used to do from her own famous kitchen. New episodes air on Heritage Radio Network, Wednesdays at noon Eastern. Listen in.